Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. I think we should just swing straight into it today, Stephen. I agree, because there is an awful lot to get through. Okay, up to you. Okay, I would like to start off discussing the life and times of Julia Frabu. Julia Frabu was born in 1938, in 1938, which is a small town in Western Victoria. And she's still considered one of the foremost brick designers that this country has produced. However... It's her interest in horse racing that most people tend to recall when discussing her life. This is a source of great concern for Ms. Frobu, who could never understand why her work in brick design was downplayed. However, we proceed. She became known as the Queen of the Cups when she managed to shatter 352 cups in the refreshment tent at the 1954 Melbourne Cup. The ensuing noise startled the favourite for the race, Blinsdale Pride, and he had to be withdrawn from both the race and a bale of hay. She offered to buy Blinsdale Pride and started to train him using her own wheedling method. Blinsdale Pride became a champion horse. Using her now famous method, Julia was soon racing winners at every major race in the country. Owners begged her to train their horses and she took up as many offers as she could. It seemed that no one else could replicate her success and when Blinsdale Pride went on to become a prize stud horse, despite being a gelding, the offers increased tenfold. In 1965, she shocked the then stayed members of Flemington Racing Club when she wore a miniskirt in the members' enclosure. Julia was good with horses, but had an atrocious memory, and she'd inadvertently forgotten to put on her hat. Percy Dredling, the secretary at the time, later recalled the fuss that was made. I was the one who approached her, he said. You have to remember that she was quite a powerful woman at the time but the rules are there for a reason. Women had to wear a hat. The miniskirt was not a problem. I recall a lot of people thought that it was the reason I refused her entry into the enclosure, but it was not that. It was the hat, or rather, the lack of a hat. I mean, I know it wasn't deliberate. She told me she'd just forgotten to put it on, but that was no excuse. She'd forgotten her top as well, but no hat, no entry. Daunted by this treatment, she remained undaunted and promised to drag the club into the 20th century. She organised a total attendance ban by women for the following Women's Day. The ban was only broken by one woman who turned up on the day, and that was Julia, who'd forgotten all about it. She further outraged the sisterhood by winning the Fashions on the Field competition simply because she was the only person there in a dress who'd remembered to shave their legs. Julia left horse racing after this fiasco and returned to brick design. And that is the story of Julia Frobu. Hey, more power to her, I say. Yes, it's a real, it's a real. Well, obviously a loss to the uh, to the the racing industry, but but a big plus that she returned to brick design, I suppose. I think people come and go in the racing industry a little bit, whereas they tend to stick to brick design. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. It's a it's a solid career. Now then, Michael, I understand you've got something interesting for us today. 
Yep, I'm following up with another great unknown woman from the past, and this is Trixie Wuff. Trixie Wuff was the only child of Bill and Helen Wuff, who were never seriously considered a suspect in the Bogle Chandler case. One of Brisbane's livelier eccentrics, Helen Wuff was the first person in that city to call for the abolition of ride-on mowers, except for the purposes of water skiing. Trixie Wuff was born in 1959 and spent her childhood in the Brisbane suburb of Morningside before completing her secondary education in 1976 and then again in 1977 just for fun. She then moved to Sydney, New South Wales and found a job in the sales and marketing department of a large insurance company. After two years of rapid promotions, she decided the job was too fiscally oriented, and so she decided to dedicate herself to the world of the arts. However, her background in the hard-headed world of business gave her an individual slant on artistic endeavour. For example, before embarking on her first project, she conducted an exhaustive market survey, analysing current trends, demographics and niche areas. Her conclusion was that in 1979 there was a dearth of large-scale installation artists in the Greater Sydney area. She launched herself on the artistic community with a controversial piece where she wrapped the entire Sydney Town Hall in non-existent brown hessian. As a work of the imagination, it was a triumph. As an artistic endeavour, it was decidedly controversial. Some felt it was daring. Others felt that it was groundbreaking, but the consensus was that it was a load of old bollocks. Friends and a Sydney talkback psychiatrist advised her to return to study to make the most of her talent. She poo-pooed this, saying that talent is an artificial crypto-elitist construct designed to interfere with true genius. Her subsequent work showed that she implemented such theories and she produced many notable no-talent works of art. More market research led her to concentrate on effective targeting of her art, which she called reaching out and others called sucking up. A large sculpture suite, five old telephone boxes surmounted by a stainless steel flagpole, was called Triumph of the CEO and was snapped up by a major mining company for display outside their headquarters and as a possible tax dodge. A ten-metre-long unframed piece of naked canvas was entitled The Divine Chairman of the Board and was bought before it was exhibited by an unnamed chairman of the board. A stack of loose-leaf paper kept together with a bulldog clip was hastily named Our Leader is Perfect and was sold that afternoon to a general manager. In 1983, she gathered many followers, mostly by the simple ploy of walking down Castlereagh Street, dropping $10 notes as she went. She achieved notoriety by taking corporate art to an extreme, by paying for billboards throughout Sydney and covering them with pages and pages from ledgers, annual reports and profit and loss statements, all carefully redacted in a pattern that was purportedly meaningful. She had a brief career on television with The Invoice Hour, which looked at ways to use receipts, delivery dockets and other office paper as the basis for origami. 
This offbeat program was cancelled after only two episodes, but her co-host, Rock and Rod Gauzer, went on to find fame as one of the passengers on Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, which crashed in the Andes, whereupon he, among others, was eaten by the rugby team survivors in an effort to stay alive. In 1986, Trixie Wuff decided to go public, floating herself on the stock exchange. After this extraordinary piece of street theatre, she decided to incorporate herself and issue shares. Six months later, she was the subject of a hostile takeover and has now been relocated offshore under the name of wafwaf.com. Well, Michael, I'm afraid I find the corporate and the financial world very confusing. But this artistic approach has just made it more confusing. It's decidedly opaque to me too, Stephen, and I hope it remains that way. Stephen, you've got another tantalising item for us. Yes, and th- this time we go well. We go back to the world of politics. Politics seems to throw up quite a few um, interesting tales um, for our, our podcast, and and this is yet another one. This concerns a little-known footnote in the annals of this great country. It was written during the general election of 1928. Candidates hoping for election to Parliament were involved in what became known as the Great Debate. The main protagonists were the Right Honourable Charles Binson and Huey Trapeze. Each had their followers. Binson had been prominent in Sydney society for many years and Trapeze was a well-known labour organiser who hailed from Scotland. Each had come to prominence within their respective political parties and each had great hopes of one day becoming the Prime Minister of Australia. The debate began when the House had almost completed a debate about import quotas when Binson, for no apparent reason, began listing his qualifications for the position of Prime Minister. He was about to give an account of his proposed economic policies when Trapeze rose to make a point of order. Binson pointed out that he could not do so. Trapeze said he could. Binson said he couldn't. Trapeze said he could. This went on for 33 hours, 17 minutes and 28 seconds, creating a record that has stood the test of time. Both men missed the actual enrolment of candidates and both were ineligible to stand for Parliament. Charles Binson left his party and started the Trapeze Can't Party. Huey Trapeze left his party and started the Oh Yes I Bloody Well Can Party, neither of which had any lasting impact on the political scene. An unlikely alliance was formed between the pair when they were censured by the Speaker of the House for abuse. A Hansard transcript of the ensuing furor follows. Speaker. The House will come to order. Order. The member for Quag will resume his seat. The member for Blint. Trapeze. Blint. If I may continue before I was so rudely interrupted by the member for Quag... Obviously, if I feel I'm capable of fulfilling the role of Prime Minister, then surely that is up to my party to decide that I am. Member for Quag, Binson interjects. You are capable of stuffing things up and that's about all. Speaker, I shall warn the member for Quag once more that he is to resume his seat. I have told you once already. Binson, you haven't told me before. You warned me, but you didn't tell me. Trapeze. He's right for once in his life. Speaker, I most definitely did tell you. Binson, didn't. And this progressed until there was a new world record set. Neither Binson nor Trapeze had any real influence on political or social life in Australia. 
although Huey Trapeze did become one of Sydney's first talkback hosts in 1943, but was sacked after only two months as no one could get a word in edgeways. Stephen, that's a remarkable tale from the past and I think it deserves this. Now, Michael, this this is a, a tale after my own heart. I, I love football. I'm very into sports. Tell us all about this one. It is a welcome return to the world of sport, especially after the world of politics that you just led us through. I think the world of sport is a little bit more down to earth, and I'm going to take you to what's called the Act of God match of 1967. The country towns of Barbarella and Milo's Towers in far northwestern Victoria have been fierce Australian football rivals for as long as anyone can remember. Locals recall Don Renfrew, who was so tough that as a warm-up before each match, he'd headbutt the goalpost a number of times. In those pre-padding days, this was a significant declaration of later willingness. Those with longer memories hark back to Albert Scanlon, who once rode a bull to training. But no one is in any doubt about the most memorable football match between these two wheat and sheep towns, the 1967 Act of God match. The season of 1967 was much the same as any other in the remote football league. Barbarella and Milo's Towers battled out first and second position all year. The other teams, McGraw's Point, Linlander, Duke Vale and Zone 32B were simply content to make up numbers. It was a foregone conclusion that Barbarella and Milo's Towers would play off in the grand final as they had for each of the previous 57 years. The surviving players recall the day of the match as being eerie. For Barbarella, Mac Talbot was the captain and chief snake handler. His first-hand account of the grand final is considered the most reliable of the participants still with us today. He speaks of huge dark clouds mounting up in the hours before the match, swirling ominously around the Snarks Park Oval, despite there not being a breath of wind at ground level. The first quarter of the match was played in torrential rain, No score was recorded in that period, as players and officials alike were doing a fine job just to remain standing. The rain simply battered smaller players to the ground, while those closest to goalposts hung on to them for support. A forward flanker from Milo's Towers, Chuck Simpson, had to be resuscitated after nearly drowning in a huge puddle on the outer wing. Miraculously, at quarter time, the rain stopped, but as soon as the game resumed, the ground was hammered by hailstones the size of golf balls. I think that's the only comparator we ever have for golf balls, that they're the size of hailstones. Within seconds, the muddy ground would turn white with ice. No score was possible in the treacherous conditions, and the players who managed to avoid icing up were in the minority. After half-time, the hail stopped, but lightning split the goalposts at the northern end of the ground. Gale-force winds lashed the ground, reducing all players to their knees as they crawled through the mud. It was impossible to stand upright. It was the last quarter, with the scores still tied at nil all, that the earthquake happened. Only two players and an umpire survived, and this match is still the only recorded senior football match in Australia ever to be abandoned due to seismic activity. 
Oh, crikey, they bred players tough in those days. <laughs> they certainly do. I think the match would have been called off long, long before those, uh, before the earthquake in these uh, more namby-pamby places like the AFL. Stephen, and I believe you're going to bring us a condensed biography of another fascinating figure from the past. Indeed I am, and this time it's from the world of medicine. This is all about Harley Slasher Fontaine. Harley was born in 1954 in Uwat, a small town in Victoria's West. His parents, Jack and Thelma, were simple shopkeepers who ran the local butchery and slaughterhouse and were considered good, solid local citizens. So solid, in fact, that Harley's father, Jack, was forced by the local council to install concrete reinforcing to his home, shop and route to work. Jack Fontaine was a substantial man in many ways. He was big in the local council, and the family were well regarded as well as blood bespattered. It's believed that the young Harley used to help out at the slaughterhouse, and this is where his interest in surgery sprang from. It would be true to say that today's microsurgery techniques owe much to young Dr Harley and his rather more prosaic macro-surgical practices. He claimed to have refined Dr Christian Barnard's open heart procedure with what became known as the open cut approach to surgery. This term was employed not so much to describe the fact that the entire chest area was indeed opened, but rather to note that the procedure tended to replicate the open cut style of coal mining, the chest of the patient being not so much opened as excavated. Harley was a great believer in the getting their boots and all approach to medicine. Harley Fontaine also pioneered the strip mining approach to dermatitis, the slash and burn cosmetic surgery procedure, and the open slather techniques used during brain surgery. He performed all of his surgery using only the finest cleavers, eschewing the more favoured scalpels as being too namby-pamby for a real surgeon. His critics were surprised by his success and he was popular with patients whose only complaint about his techniques was that it took a long time for their broken jaws to heal. And it should be pointed out here that Harley also acted as an anaesthetist during his operations and relied upon a good right hook. In 1979, tired of the protocols and administrative restraints he was forced to adhere to, Harley came to the realisation that he was becoming very, very trapped in the traditional view of medicine. He travelled the world widely, particularly Asia, and interviewed practitioners of alternate therapies. He immersed himself in the study of past medical practices and came to the conclusion that there's something in this bullshit after all. He returned a changed man and opened a clinic that once again changed the way medicine was dispensed. He reasoned that herbal medicine seemed to have the best success rate of all the alternate practices he'd studied. He further reasoned that it was the processing of the various herbs used in the practice that actually dissipated the efficacy of the plants. It didn't take much of an intuitive jump for Harley to propose that herbs processed by animals would retain their vitality better than herbs processed by chemical means, and thus was born Harley Fontaine's contribution to holistic medicine, herbal therapy based on meat and meat byproducts. His intestinal fortitude brand of herbal extracts contained more meat than most sausages. Indeed, he actually bought out a brand of sausages that he advised should be taken internally. People wondered about this for a while. 
Harley's Natural Mineral Water, a line of medicinal refreshments, was advertised as 97% fat, and his range of gourmet slimmers products had to be withdrawn from market when it was found they were a threat to the environment. Harley Fontaine left medicine shortly after the ensuing court case. Thanks, Stephen. I always appreciate a bit of a look into the world of medicine. But you don't want to look too close a look. Good point. It's like uh, making sausages, isn't it? You really (laughs) don't want to see how it's done. And now another look at a location. This one, I think, is in, in Melbourne. That's correct, Stephen. I am really geographically oriented for this item. Greytown was an early inner suburb of Melbourne, squeezed between Collingwood and Fitzroy. In its short life, the suburb was famous for having more public houses than churches, and it was the home of more criminals, cutthroats and thieves than the rest of the city put together. Greytown was named after an early prominent citizen, Eunice Ma Gray. Her sons, Ronald, Donald, Horace, Morris, Shane, Wayne, Arthur and Martha, all headed feared gangs in the 1840s, each with their own specialty. Ronald Gray took care of extortion. Donald was the chief arsonist. Horace was in charge of blackmail. Morris's area was stolen goods. Shane covered gambling. Wayne took on prostitution. Arthur managed political interference, while Martha controlled the illicit trade in plastic surgery for pets throughout the city. As well as these gangs, many smaller and less sophisticated groups of villains roamed the inadequately lit and poorly cobbled streets of Greytown. The Blackstreet boys were terrors when it came to assault and close harmony. Fleetwood and Mac were feared for their bag-snatching and laid-back adult contemporary sounds. The unrighteous brothers were expert kidnappers who relayed their ransom demands in the form of highly produced, lavishly scored songs, often dubbed Blue-Eyed Stolen Soul. Greytown was a sea of constant criminal activity, but without the facilities or lovely surrounds of Parliament House. Sanitation was almost non-existent, water had to be carted from the nearby Yarra River, and any unwary bag-snatcher was likely to have his bag snatched as soon as he snatched it. In 1851, a crusading public moralist named Gladys Tierling had had enough and decided that Greytown needed cleaning. She led a march with 15 supporters along Grey Street, the main street of Greytown. They were never seen again although rumours persisted that all 16 were later arrested for being drunk and disorderly after a late-night conga line down nearby Smith Street, Collingwood. In 1856, the mayors of adjacent suburbs, Collingwood and Fitzroy, held a secret meeting at the Collingwood Town Hall. The criminal activity emanating from Greytown was doing irreparable damage to the criminals in their suburbs due to the overwhelming competition. Something had to be done. The two mayors hit on a daring but simple plan. The first stage was to steal all the street signs in Greytown, an easy task as many had been stolen already, for practice by local youths. The second stage was to bribe all Melbourne map and directory makers to leave Greytown off their maps. This they did, and within three years no one could remember where Greytown was. In ten years they'd even forgotten the name and the Greytown crime problem was no more. And so, even today, 
Out-of-town tourists occasionally wind up in back streets that don't appear in any street directory, which are, in reality, the overgrown and abandoned remnants of Melbourne's lost suburb. It always amazes me that these stories from our past often throw up other related stories that, that themselves need some research. Now, you mentioned that Eunice Gray's youngest son, Martha Gray, controlled all of the illicit plastic surgery for pets in Greytown, despite the fact that plastic was not even invented at the time. Now, my very obvious question is, why was he called Martha? All right, Stephen, that's just about all we've got time for. But before we go, let's dive into the mailbag. And before we dive into the mailbag, I'd like to point out that mailbag is a skewomorph. A skewomorph? Do tell. <laughs> a skewomorph is something that mimics the form of an object, but it's made by other techniques, often harking back to past usage. The classic example is the save icon on many computer interfaces. Like the old floppy disk type. Yeah, and a lot of people have never held a proper floppy disk in their hand, but they know it from the icon. Other examples, like electric candles. I mean, why are they made in that shape? And the shopping trolley icon for online shopping. It's it's not a shop, it's it's harking back to something else. And one I particularly like is the built-in shutter sound on a digital camera. Doesn't need to be there, but it's there for sort of comforting reasons. Oh, I've just thought of another one. You understand that the doors on modern cars have a built-in clunk. They build it in now. They can actually engineer doors so carefully that they could close quite quietly. But when people buy cars, one of the things they do is they like to give the door a close and if they hear a satisfying clunk, yeah, quality car. But they have to build it in now. And that's a skewermorph. That is a skewermorph. That would be a good name for a band. Our mailbag isn't a real bag and the mail isn't real letters, but it's comforting and instantly recognisable when we talk of a bunch of emails and messages as a mailbag. Well, let me dip my hand into the skewer morph and pull out a piece of mail. Um, now, this first one is a, an email from Mr Jules Bamboo who wanted to know if we'd ever heard of the mythical town of Minty in New South Wales. Apparently it's famous for being totally unknown. That's a good start for us, though, because things don't stay unknown once we get our hands on them. Well, that's right. That's right. But funnily enough, I pulled out another email, and it's from the shy president of Minty, asking us not to respond to Mr Bamboo's email, as that would ruin the only thing the town was famous for. So I'm a bit of a, bit of a quandary about what we should do with that one. I don't know whether to follow it up or not. We need to have a meeting about that, I'd say. I think, I think we should, yes. Now, Stephen, I've got, I've got one. I've got uh, something here. My f- this is my first mailbag item for Season 2, so I'm really, really pleased to get into it. It's from Dallas Trelling from New Orleans, Tasmania, who's asked if we've come across any mention of famous personages visiting Australia in disguise, totally unknown to the public. Dallas goes on to hint at various celebrities and trips, including events that I'd 
rather not go into with, without legal advice. But it's an interesting coincidence as I've just started to follow up the possibility that just before the Great War, George Bernard Shaw visited Australia incognito on a mission on the behalf of British intelligence. I can't say more at this stage, but watch this space. Well, we better run that one past the legal department too. Yep. We had an email from a Mr. Scott Frost who states that he saw the huge black panther that has reportedly escaped from a circus in approximately 213 country towns that I know of. He said this sighting was in the zoo in Melbourne, so this one has the air of authenticity about it, so I might follow this one up. I think we could even get photos. Possibly, but yeah, let's, let's not promise things that we can't deliver on. We won't jump the gun. Any more, Stephen? I, I just did – I remember last episode I raised the, the, the fact that many of our best leads are given to us by you know, those three old blokes that you see in a pub all the time. And Mr Keith Orkney has pointed out the weird thing about those three guys that you see in the least fashionable pub in every small town in Australia is that they're actually the same three guys in every pub. Now, that could be worth pursuing. Oh, yeah, definitely. We mark that one in our book of things to follow up. All right, I think it's time to wind up, Stephen. So I'll just say farewell from me. And farewell from me. And do not forget, follow, like, and tell your friends. Everybody needs to listen to Apocryphal Australia. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders... Get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? <laughs>